And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Small Biz Matters. This is Alexi Boyd, live at the studios of Triple H 100.1 FM. On my own, of course, in this weird world we live in, but joined online by our guest. Now, I wanted to thank all of my lovely listeners who have been uh, fabulous in their support of Small Biz Matters lately. I know there's loads of you listening to the show. There's loads of you downloading. Thank you so much. Your support is greatly appreciated. And it's also greatly appreciated for Triple H 100.1 FM. If you'd like to look after your local community radio station, the best thing you can do is, of course, listen. Have a listen to what we're, um, we're giving you. There's loads of community uh, topics. There's tons of people doing great things all over um, community radio, all over Australia. And I would um, definitely suggest that you guys have a listen and enjoy what's happening. Now, um, I wanted to have a chat to our guest today, and we're going to be talking about a topic that is very, very important. We have with us Andreas Zulma, who is actually the CEO and founder of Longtail. The reason why I wanted to bring him on the program today is Um, because I want to talk to everybody about the importance of really understanding on an empathetic level your employees and what their needs are. So working conditions have never been in such a state of flux across the country, industry, sector, structures, you name it, we've adapted like never before. And between laying off employees and rehiring in a hurry, madly setting up aligned remote workstations, uh, equipment purchasing for staff, tech challenges, it is, as always, us small businesses who lead from the front when it comes to flexibility. But somewhere in there, we all need to remember that our employees are actually humans and not chess pieces who need to adapt immediately to our needs. So now more than ever, it's important for businesses to engage on a personal level with their workforce to make sure you understand their needs as humans as well as responsibilities as an employer. Andreas Zulma has across multiple companies encouraged a diverse workforce which ticks all the eclectic boxes. Through a unique management style and genuine connections, he's managed to understand the individuality of employees and adapt these relationships to new remote workplace world we now live in. Welcome to the show, Andreas. Um, Tell me about the unique nature of the long-tail UX workforce you've had in the past and why supporting diversity is so important as an employer. Um, yeah, I think we're, we're quite unique. The, the funny thing is we don't actually see us as that unique, but when you just look at the numbers and the statistics, um, obviously we are. We're a team of uh, 32 and uh, 30 of them are here in Sydney, um, or 29. And um, we actually have very different backgrounds. So we're from 16 different countries and we speak 16 different languages. Um, that starts with the founders. Uh, Will Santo, my co-founder, he's Australian. I'm German, as you can probably guess um, when I speak. Um, and um, yeah, but then we have, we have really people from, from pretty much everywhere. It's a bit like the United Nations uh, over here um, for such a small team. And why is that so important when you're, I guess it's not something you would be deliberately doing when you're creating a workforce. It's more of an openness when it comes to creating that employment, uh, you know, workforce that you work with. It's it's a good question. So I've asked that myself. And I think what I believe in that um, how you start and how your management team is like, like, whether it's diverse or not, you sort of replicate yourself. And so, um, well, as I said, like the two founders already from two different continents, um, I myself, I lived in, uh, well, in Germany. I, li- I lived and worked in, in Ireland at Google. Um, I spent a bit of time in the US again with Google. Um, I lived in Spain and worked there. So I don't know. I think once you have that background and you get used to work with like 
teams from very many different countries. I think you get quite open when you hire, but we've never deliberately said, hey, we need more people from that country or less people from that country. Or even in terms of gender, um, I mean, obviously there's two male founders, um, but we have a 50-50 split, uh, which also for a tech company is quite quite interesting, I guess. So this male-female split is exactly 50%. Um, again, there, we we never actually deliberately said, hey, we need to hire a female developer now, or we need to have someone in sales who's male or... It just sort of happens, but we always keep an eye on it. I think. Like we're, I think we're, it's more we are conscious about it, but we don't make decisions based on 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 country, origin, or gender. Yeah, and, and I think that's obviously what you're supposed to do when it comes to employment regulations, anyway. But it's a, it, I guess it's that natural way of just seeing people for what their skill set is. What also makes your workforce quite interesting and diverse is, and I know you sing this from the rooftops, is that you're actually outnumbered in terms of the children that your employees have, as opposed to your employees. That's an interesting statistic to even talk about in the beginning and shows that you've got a real empathy and an understanding of your staff's needs outside of the workplace. How do you uh, incorporate that into your management style, that that understanding and that awareness? I think that again starts with management and with the founders. So when we, when Will and I started the company, uh, Will already was a father of four, um, with a with an extremely supportive wife, obviously in the background. Um, because when you start a business, that's his second business actually he started, um, like directly as a founder. He actually started like a couple before as well. Um, so, and then in the course of the last seven years, I actually became a father of three as well. So I think once you have kids yourself, it's so much easier to actually realize um, what it what's required. Um, and then also when we hired people, we were, we, in the beginning, we needed people with a lot of experience in their roles. So what we are as a business is quite a complex technology. We, we built everything from scratch, had to build up the whole IP, the entire software platform and everything, do lots of R&D. So we needed experienced people. And when you have when you hire experienced people and uh, you automatically get a higher proportion of, of moms or dads, and because then also we had like a, like a gender split like 50 50 pretty much you had you have mums of course right and and unfortunately i think nowadays still um it's always sort of expected or what happens is that if as a as a, as a man you have kids it's sort of well it's just, just like an employee right but if 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 you're a mother and an employee you're sort of like your mother and employee is like sort of it's still, it's still more expected that you take care a bit more of family in some 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 way obviously also when you have kids you take a break and all of that um, but I think having kids ourselves and seven between the two founders um, definitely prepared us to be much more aware of what's required and how you have to support people. Now, being an employer and being, um, you know, the head of a company, it has a lot of practical uh, ways that you need to implement all of those things when it comes to, um, I guess, just being aware of the needs of your employees. How do you factor that into your uh, processes and procedures when it comes to HR? So do you find yourself asking them more empathetic questions like how are things going? Do you need more time to do something? Um, How is that infiltrating in your processes and procedures? I think for both on like when you have family and, and or employees, mothers and, and dads, but also when you have a diverse workforce from different countries, you have to ask much more questions. And you also have to um, question your own approaches sometimes much more because 
And I think that probably also comes, we talked before about the hiring in, in international uh, people from, from other countries. Um, there's, there's not just one way of doing something, right? And especially when you come from different cultures, there's many different ways how you're, how you're used to what's normal. And so once you realize that there's different normals in different countries for different situations, you actually realize that whatever you think is normal is not the only way to do something. And that actually makes it much a richer experience. And you can actually do much more in many different ways. You're much more flexible. But to actually make that work, you have to ask much more questions. And then that helps also when you have to support or, or, or think how how to um, work with, um, well, like have a workforce where we have uh, 34 kids um, among the the, 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 the the 32 employees. So um, it's really asking questions. It's not so much, oh, like we know this works like that and to be able to have a family life and be efficient at work, this is the way how you do it. That just doesn't work because that works maybe for Will, that maybe works for me, but it wouldn't work for others. So really asking lots of questions and we have a really amazing um, uh, HR manager, um, mother as well, um, and she really helped us over the last few years as well to, to be, um, yeah, to, to just be aware. Could I ask you, um, you've got, as you mentioned, you had a workforce of uh, around 32. Uh, do you have an external or an internal HR manager? Uh, internal, internal. So um, it's actually, that, that was a bit of a journey as with every a startup and every role over here. We've been growing, we've doubled team size uh, over the last four years, every single year. And that means also roles change a lot. So she started actually, I think originally we, we hired Ange uh, in like sort of like a team support, um, uh, um, personal assistant sort of for, for Like an for office management role. Mm. Yeah, and then, then it more went into office management but because she has so much experience um, also on the HR side. And when we were growing, um, she was just so instrumental helping us hire and, and just creating all the structures and procedures. And so basically she grew then into the people and operations manager now um, and uh, using all, all her skills and experience. And, um, uh, but that's true for many other roles as well, right? Like you start as a developer and suddenly you're a lead developer and then you architect the entire system or you start as a, as a support person, suddenly you manage eight people. So, yeah. Let's talk about that shift, very violent and quite sudden shift that if we're all experiencing into the remote space where there was the initial scramble to get everybody set up from home. Could I ask firstly, did you already have people working from home within the roles that they had or was everybody full-time in, in-house? Yeah, we, we were quite fortunate that we were partly prepared. So first of all, we obviously have in, in the US and in Europe, um, they work between from home and from WeWork or like, like a shared office. But, so th- but they were used to working remotely already. Um, and, and, and actually our, our um, person in, in uh, a team member in Spain as well, in Madrid. Um, so they were used to that. Over here, we had a policy uh, that everyone could work from home once a fortnight. Um, we actually wanted to make that more often, but the challenge was with a small team, then you don't have people in the office all the time. So we thought, okay, once a fortnight is the minimum we can do for everyone. And um, that basically helped us. Well, we already had the setup and everyone was used to work from home. What we weren't used was every every single person working from home. Uh, and it's a different, a very different thing if you have a room full of like, let's say 10 people for a large meeting, you have two people dialing in. 
versus not everyone is dialing in. Mm. So, so while we were prepared, we weren't prepared for exactly what we're doing right now. Did you find all those cultural differences and the eclectic mix of people that you have meant that people were more adaptable for um, an online situation or was it even more difficult because you can't use body language um, in those conversations that you would normally be having around a table? So we're trying to do most uh, most of the things by video calls so that you actually see the video. And, and we encourage people to actually have the video switched on um, in, in meetings because I think that's, that's, that's a very good point. I think this is very, very important. Um, meetings just over the phone, dialing in, is very hard. You don't even know when you have 10 people there when you can speak, right? You're constantly interrupting each other. So it's so much easier when you, when you can raise a hand or, or you can actually see each other. Um, it's more personal. Um, has us being more international from different backgrounds helped or hindered? It's hard to say because like this is the once in a lifetime experience. I never had this before. I haven't done this with another team. <laughs> I think we're, we're coping quite, quite well, I would say. Um, we've done a survey as well. I think that's also really important. We've done a survey last week. How's everyone coping? How efficient does everyone feel like from zero to 100 percent? Asked everyone to be really, really honest um, because it was anonymous. And I think we came in anywhere between 50 and 100 percent. The 50% was um, for some people saying, well, I have kids at home. I have to do homeschooling. It's tough, right? And you have to recognize that. Like there's no, um, well, there's no way around that. It's just a reality. So we, we have to work around that. Yeah. And I think that that's, that is that's a good way to sum it up, actually. It is, that is the reality. You, you know, you're not going to get 100% efficiency out of your staff. What do you think that that sort of effect is going to have on the overall growth of the company? And are you basically seeing yourself as, you know, the politicians would like us to, which is that we're all in a bit of a a stagnation? Or do you see this as um, just a slowdown and it's you're still going to continue to grow? Is it is it really going to have a huge impact on your growth? So so we hired four people um, last month. So yes, I mean, so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so we, we basically just increased the team by 10%. So we, we, but we already had those roles open since December, January, right? And we're looking for very specialized skilled people. And also there has to be a cultural fit in terms of person, not culture in terms of nation, but um, yeah, in terms background. of personality, <laughs> but, yeah. but in terms of personality, right? We pretty much hire for personality first. And then the skills you can, um, well, we need some skills, but you can teach a lot as well. Um, so, so they were in the pipeline and we basically made the call that we, we still wanted to onboard them. Um, that's challenging because there pretty much there were actually two people who started the week we actually everyone went 100% work from home. So we have to onboard them and help them to become uh, efficient and 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 feel efficient as well um, online. Um, so yeah, but th- so that's one part of the question. Did that change? Did that at the moment we're we're a bit of course we have to uh, just observe the market. Um, as a technology, we um, help businesses to be more efficient online. Um, in the search channel. So a paid search, organic search, it's like a landing page, automation technology. We work with large online retailers. So as a business, obviously, um, we're perfectly placed for this world moving more online. Yeah. Um, but of course, for the next two, three months, what we just see is everyone is just um, just, just see what happens, right? I th- the, the businesses that we, we have some clients who are who get like massive demand right now, um, but, um, well, they're busy with uh, fulfilling the demand. How, how can you run a warehouse? You can't work from home there, right? So how, with all the regulations. Um, and then there's other businesses who have like a bit of online, but they have all these stores. So they, they're not, they will grow their online proportion. They might work with us, uh, many of them, 
soon at some point. But right now, they have many other different things to do. So I think for the next two, three months, we had to prepare as well for being a bit of a holding pattern. And and that's and that's indeed where the strength is of of uh, small businesses: the ability to be flexible and agile and move quickly. Um, yours is a fairly big team, though. So, uh, can I ask, with that with that shift and with that um, that uh, what's the word that everybody's using at the moment? The pivoting. <laughs> with that pivot, how do you do it with such a large team? Because obviously, a small business, we can just go. I choose to do this today. I choose to do that. But it's harder with a team of thirty four people. How do you instruct them without having them in the room? What are some good strategies you could give other businesses to help people pivot as a larger team? Again, I think we were really well prepared for that in a way that we don't actually, it's not a very top-down approach. Um, we have very experienced people and um, we don't tell people what they have to do every day. It's um, not not even team culture-wise, right? Um, so, for example, when we moved online, we thought, oh, what do we do to keep the energy up so everyone feels included? And then they started to self-organize, right? They, they, do, they started doing like a, there's a, a trivia for 15 minutes every day at 3 p.m., basically where everyone gets together and just, just, just trivia questions, just to have like some, everyone is there and just you have a bit of like some personal interaction. Um, we have a Zoom channel, which is called Water Cooler. So every everyone who um, basically wants to have a drink or, or has a tea or whatever can basically just go into that Zoom channel and, and or tell other people, hey, I'm going to have a tea now. I'm going to have a tea now. But that was self-organized, right? We actually don't, don't we didn't, didn't order that. In terms of pivoting business, there's obviously a few decisions we had to make as as management. Um, so what what are the products like our our software products? Like what do we have to do, and what's going to be in demand, and what's probably harder to sell? Um, and that's where we really spend two three weeks um, scrambling for information because in March you didn't have that information. Mm. Which which industry is going to be actually okay? Which industries are going to be too busy because they're, 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 they're busy with fulfilling demand? Which industries are going to be completely flat? I mean, travel tourism was one, it was easy, right? But many others, like you really didn't know. Um, so we had to get a lot of information. And, and, but then we do, we are quite agile how we plan. Um, so I think we were we were pretty well set up to to changing course. It sounds to me as though these um, <clears throat> particular processes and procedures you've already got in place was mm. part of the culture and the way that you managed anyway. And I like your point about almost entrusting your staff that they will be able to see what needs to be done. And um, what a great idea, the water cooler idea. You said that come from one of your employees? Yeah, actually, well, that came actually from a from a podcast somewhere where where we looked at that what other people did, and so basically then hey we we should like someone said we should do this should do this within the team. The trivia came just straight from the team, and there were a few other things also which came straight straight from them. Um, yeah. Well, that's fantastic. We're going to take a quick break here on Small Biz Matters. And when we come back after the break, we're going to be talking more to Andreas about that management technique, which has held him in such good stead for this monumental shift that businesses great and small are going through. You're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM. We'll be back after this. Now, I want to talk to you just before the break. We were having a chat about the management techniques that you've always employed when it came to, comes to having an empathetic understanding of your employees and how that transition into home office was tricky. It was difficult, but uh, you know, it, it, was, it was manageable because of those, um, th- that situation that you had. What would you say to a small business owner who's kind of scrambling to manage everything at the moment, whether it be their own family life, 
and managing employees. What are some sort of high-level strategies you can suggest for them to help them manage with them their employees and support them more as humans, not just as you know figures on a chessboard? Yeah, I, I can maybe talk about how we did it and and the steps we took. Right. Um, so first of all, um, we well we we were in a very very fortunate position that we actually just had a, like a funding round. We just closed the funding round while, while everything was going on. However, actually, just before it was closed, there was a moment where we weren't actually sure because there was so much uncertainty in the market, even from, from the investors, that although we had been talking for two and a half years uh, and everything was already uh, like, well, the lawyers, everyone was, everything was prepared, the papers were prepared, that even they weren't sure, which tells you how much uncertainty was there. Um, in the end, then they, they well, that went through with it. And so we were in a great position. However, on the other hand, we had no idea mid-March what the whole thing meant by end of March. So how long does it take? Like, what's the downturn? Uh, what's going to happen? Like, no, no one knew. And still, we, we know a bit more now, a bit more about timeframes. But we don't, there's lots of things we don't know. So the first thing we had to do, even though we, had, we, got, we received money, um, investment, the first thing we had to do is basically create a business plan which was radically different from what we had before, like a crisis plan. What happens if you if you lose X amount of revenue, and this is going to stay like that for twelve months, all right? Because no one knew, and we still don't really know. It's like, we, of course, we think in three four months things will change, but you have to be super conservative. So that was the first thing we had to do, and then actually look like, what does it actually mean for my business? Do do I do I survive? Like, there's something you call survivor bias, right? You can do well after the crisis, but you have to survive. Only the ones that actually survive will do anything. So the first thing is you have to be super conser- conservative with money. Once you do that, we had to communicate to our team, basically saying, hey, um, we got funding, but um, also the world around us is in turmoil. And we actually had to do this before there was actually really clear and you had all these announcements, the whole social distancing and the whole work, like that was before, like think about the, like the 19th of March. Um, that was before a lot of the announcements, like everyone knew the topic, but we actually had to explain to our team as, hey, we have to take a few measures um, and you might not understand them yet, but there's like something, there's something coming. Um, How did so you communicate that? Could I ask, was that a, because by that stage you were, you still had your staff around you, but yes. by the time they got, like, say, for example, someone wants to communicate that now, would yeah. you suggest um, a very open meeting where everyone can see everyone's faces? I'm thinking in the practical sense. Do, do you make sure yeah. that everyone can see people's reactions so they don't feel alone? 100%. So when we did it, we, we knew we had two or three days before at least half of the team would start working from home. So we, we, we still did it when everyone was in the office. So that because we, we knew it's different when you do it face to face. The first thing we did is we talked to the leadership team. Uh, that's like nine people, like the managers of the different departments and, and the people like with, with more responsibilities and basically discuss with them what we have to do. And then once we, we decided among us that we were okay with a certain approaches, we then uh, did the next day, we talked to the, to the whole team and did like an all hands, everyone in the room basically explained them. And there were people who were shocked, basically like, wow, like we didn't know, like, is this actually happening? And then on the weekend after that, actually the whole announcement came as, hey, stay home, don't move and all of these things. Um, right now, I would definitely advise... Um, the, the tricky thing is with the culture. I can only say it worked with our culture. The problem is if you have a much more top-down approach, um, how do you suddenly be open and have everyone in one room, right? Because you will have dissent. People will say, hey, I'm not happy with that. or uh, And you have to allow that. 
right? Not everyone is happy. Uh, say, hey, like we, I don't know. Let's say we were we work four days a week for 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 a while now, right? That means eighty percent of salaries for everyone, including management. Mm. Um, uh, because we just want to make sure like this month, we don't know how next month will be. And then we basically decide on a monthly basis. Um, not everyone might be happy with that. Um, or, or I don't know, bonuses. We need a bonus freeze right now, right? Um, and and pe- people bank on that, right? So you have to, I think that the, the most important thing for us is to say, whatever we do for the team right now, we do exactly the same for the management. And right? you think, uh, like, would you say that's fairly crucial for small business as well to have that, that approach? Super important because this is like small business is it's a bit like a family, right? Like you have like very um, well, whether you like or not, you spend a lot of time together and you have like you know more about other people. It's not like a I think if you're in a massive organization with like seven levels of hierarchy, um, you have different problems. But I think you really have to make sure that everyone understands, everyone feels tre- feels treated um, uh, uh, like like similar or like like in in a, in a um, yeah. Um, in a fair way. Mm. And that always starts with the owner as well, right? So, and you have to explain, like, this is the situation. This is why we have to do certain things. This is what we do to us. And we're really sorry. This is what we have to do to you. But we're in this together. And we're going to go through this. And you, sometimes you also have to give them alternatives. And I think that's what we realized is if you make a decision and if you only basically say, oh, this is the best way to do it, if you only communicate that, sometimes people feel like, oh, that's not great. But if you actually explain them, so these were the other two alternatives we could do. And I said, oh, that actually feels like, yeah, I would do the same. Yeah. I agree, right? So being so open and ex- honest about the decision-making yeah. process and, and yes. why you came to these conclusions is quite important. Yes, be open about doubts as well. You say, hey, we're, we're like, this is what we're doubting. Like people need to feel less leadership, but that you can't pretend. Like don't pretend. Don't pretend to know, oh, this is going to last exactly a month. And then everything would be like, you don't know, right? So so be open, and but tell people that you, um, well, and that you care as well. Um, we were in a really good position. Like I've seen other businesses where they had to lay off 20% of, of staff. Again, there, like you have to communicate because you can't just say, hey, um, well, by the way, tomorrow there's going to be a few deaths or say, oh, everyone's working from home. People won't notice or like you just can't because you need like and also you want to do the right thing. Right. And sometimes you have to make decisions which aren't great, but you have to communicate. And 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 yeah. It sounds to me like if you've been a great communicator that whole time with having employees on site, then it's a natural transition. But I also like your mention about the top-down approach is that if that's always been your management style, that's fine as well. You may not make it a a decision that they can be involved with, but at least be open and honest about what the decision-making process was and show that in fairness, uh, it's, it's you experiencing this downturn as well as them. It should also be mentioned as well that, um, there is a difference. I think there's a little bit of confusion out there between the difference between standing someone down and actually letting someone go. And obviously under difficult circumstances like this, you're well within your rights as a business owner to let people go because of the change in market conditions. But standing someone down, uh, that means that they remain on your books and they continue to accrue uh, annual leave and other entitlements as well, according to the agreement that you've got and according to national employment standards. And that's kind of a, a nice thing to do. But in terms of financially, if you've got a large workforce, you may not be able to, you know, accrue all that entitlement and keep that on your balance sheet. So it's something else to be mindful of. Yeah, definitely. I think I, I think it's the, the, the most important thing is also to explain employees and for yourself. The first thing, if you, if you run out of money as a business, everyone's going to lose their jobs, right? Um, and well, and actually, if you if you if you're trading insolvent, you get into 
all kinds of different trouble as 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 a director, right? Like that's that's something else to really be aware of. And but you can tell these things to employees, like you you can because they you have to explain both sides, um, and also saying, hey, we were prepared in some way for for this. Yeah, we were in some, but we had to learn a lot. Like mm. we have uh, we have not had those meetings before didn't have to communicate in a way like that, didn't have to understand like something and then actually translate it to the business, change the entire business plan. As I said, we're, we're, we're still in a good situation, right? Um, but um, still, like so many changes, uh, we had to learn a lot. We're constantly learning. And one thing we also learned is that when you have everyone on site, you can, um, there's, you can shortcut a lot of things, right? Like, oh, maybe your documentation on something isn't as great because everyone is in the same room. They can ask questions. Maybe your uh, something isn't organized really well, people don't know how to find. You can you can solve all that. Once everyone moves online, you, you really realize that you have to step up your organization, you have to step up your folder structure on Dropbox, you have to step up your, your dashboards, what are you actually looking at on a daily basis. And especially then when you change strategy, you realize, oh man, my business model wasn't really flexible before. Like I have to do, do redo everything. So I think we, we, we're learning as well. And I think, to be honest, we are in a very good position that we can actually use this month and the next maybe two or three months um, to make our foundation so much stronger. And, and, and to, yeah. Could I ask you with, with regards to that visibility over your staff? I mean, obviously with a group of 30 people, some people are going to be quite organised and some people are going to be a bit more creative in the way that they have folder structures. Was mm-hmm. that something that uh, when you realised that you needed to have that visibility, you immediately started clamping down and being a bit stricter with the way people manage uh, and, and uh, file away their work so that you can see it more visibly? Or were, did you still allow them to have their own style and, and then just work with what they did? How did you manage that? I think in that sense, we or I realized for myself that sometimes you need a top-down approach. And, and that's where you need one, where you basically don't tell everyone where, how to organize their files, but it's more like, what, what, are the, what, is, what are the documents I need to see? And what are the numbers I need to see on a daily basis immediately? And what do I need from the different heads of departments? Uh, and then, then once they know that I need that, they know what they need. And then it goes like the next level. Mm. Um, so it's not like you can't tell everyone how to organize their folders. But you can create a few rules, for example. Don't store stuff on your desktop. Uh, if you use Google Docs and Google Sheets or like all of these these online documents, and if we, like we have a like an internal system, it's called Confluence. We're using Jira. It's like a software development. It's Atlassian, like the big uh, Australian um, unicorn. Um, uh, they're amazing. So that's like a software planning uh, product project management tool. And they have something like an internal wiki. Like you can create pages and basically create documentation. But all the documents we're using, other they have to be linked from there. Right, so you can create some rules where you have to tell people this is how it, how it has to be done, but then um, I think really from a top down you have to understand what are what are the numbers, the daily numbers, the weekly numbers, and trends I need to be able to see immediately, and then and then everything has to be organized around that. Mm. All right, so that's your top down, which you definitely need. Yeah, and and that would come from what you were saying before about having that business plan in place and recognizing that mm. in this situation. In a worst case scenario, you do need to have an, an eye on those numbers almost on a daily basis so you can make f- fast decisions. Yeah, yeah, it's very so, important. We're going to take a quick break here on Small Biz Matters. Once again, we'll go to a couple of community service announcements. And when we come back, I want to talk to um, Andreas a little bit more about that funding uh, and how it is 
how do you how do you even contemplate? Many people don't know how to get funding in the first place, but how do you get funding in a scenario where everything's going into shutdown? You're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM with Small Biz Matters. We'll be back after this. So today I'm talking to Andreas Zulma, who is the CEO and founder of Longtail UX and a software company which is in incredible growth phase and was in an incredible growth phase just as this little funky little thing called coronavirus and social isolation and complete economic lockdown hit us all. Now, right before this, uh, as Andreas mentioned earlier, there was um, a round of funding which you had been negotiating for, what was it, two and a half years, Andreas? Uh, so we were we were in contact with the investors for two mm-hmm. and a half years, but mm-hmm. we hadn't been negotiating. So we, we really started in November um, where we talked about the actual investment. Um, did a bridging round in November just to give us a bit more time. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, um, good, good, uh, well, good idea in hindsight. And then closed the round in on the nineteenth of March, like, like the nineteenth of March that just went. Yes, so, <laughs> which seems like a two years ago. So that that would have been quite impactful when it comes to um, you know what was going on with with the funding. Did you immediately think, well, that's it? the investors are going to pull all their funds or did you have such a good relationship with them that you didn't have those concerns and maybe they just needed a bit of adaptability going on? So we, we had a very good relationship with them. They have been like helping us a lot with like uh, connections and advice in the past. And uh, we just didn't, uh, we just didn't formalize like an investment uh, before where we basically, we, we, well, we, we had other investors um, like uh, high net worth investors, like like uh, angel investors um, from Wild Network mainly, and from his previous business. Um, and but so so we we were quite close with them in terms of like they knew us, we knew them. We had like lots of rounds of different conversations before. So um, I think and that was so important. I think without that, I'm pretty sure that the investment would have not gone through because as a fund, um, like I think now everyone has much more visibility. As I said. Uh, three weeks ago, like it was like no one really knew how, how does the how does the the nation how, how how do the different countries react how what does that mean for the economy how does it mean for the what does it mean for the different sectors so obviously as a fund you have they have already existing investments and they have to make sure that they can continue to support them as well through the crisis um, but then they decided okay they can actually do both um, which was great and they saw us as a obviously as a great opportunity because. As I said before, we're actually enabling businesses to be much more efficient on the search channel, which is the most important channel for many businesses and for e-commerce. So we're pretty well placed for the post-coronavirus phase. So you mentioned that that relationship that you have with investors and the fact that it was ongoing was so important. Was there a, a diversity? Uh, is it a good idea for a, a small business that's going through this rapid growth and needing investment of, of various types, whether it be angel investing or venture capitalists? Is it important that you diversify those investors for this reason? Because if there's a downturn, you need to know that there's some that can be relied on? This is... I think this is a great question, and I can obviously only answer this from our point of view. And I think there's probably one advice I can give. If, if you want advice on investments, you should only take advice from someone who actually got investments. There's so much advice out there. You can read books, but people having opinions on like what they would do and what's our best practices. Like, and, and as I said, well, this is the first business I'm, I'm in where we actually get funding. Um, if there's other people who did this five times, and got investments five times, well, ask them and, and trust them even more than, than me, right? So I think you should only really trust someone who actually done it. Um, now, what we realized is that, yes, you should, first of all, everything takes time. 
Um, and you can read about that as well. Like it's not like you you have a great idea and then you you find an investor, you pitch to them, and they make a like a call within three months. That may happen. Like I don't know if you're Mark Zuckerberg and or if you're Google and but uh, I don't think that that's like normally what happens is you talk to them and then they you're interested and then they basically give you some feedback. Also, the interesting thing is if you talk to ten different VCs, they're going to give you ten different types of feedback. Uh, it's just because everyone has a different angle, but, but it's all great feedback. So even if you don't get investment, just talking to them, if, if they actually give you that time, um, is is super helpful. Um, it should not change your entire business, but you should just take it like take it on board. And and not everyone is telling like the one truth, but they all have obviously they hear like six hundred like a thousand pitches every year, so they've seen many many other businesses. Um, but you have to talk to many, and then you have to find someone who fits. And find someone where you fit into the portfolio as well. Um, and someone might just have already, I don't know, covered X and they just need another whatever AI business or robotics or they want to cover something else. Like it's, you can't, you can't plan that. So you really have to be talking. But then as a small business, the problem is you say, oh, you have to spend a lot of time and talking to investors. Well, you have to sell, you have to build the product, you have to do so many things. So what's your priority? It's a, it's a tough one, right? Because if you only spend your time talking to VCs and talking to investors, but you actually don't develop a product and don't sell it and in, into, into customers, all the talking to investors won't help you either. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I really like that point. It's it's about that relationship building, but mm. managing your own business at the same time. I think we all underestimate the amount of time it takes to build up your credibility, your reputation, and who you know, and getting that advice. And all those th- those hours add up with, with you not spending time on your business. So yeah. in terms of, if you were talking to someone who was really micro, and they just basically had this idea, is it realistic to think that you can uh, build those relationships with investors and then also be still working on your product at the same time? Or is it, it is it important that you immediately get someone to start working inside the business almost immediately so you can build those relationships? Chicken before the I, egg kind of thing. I think, I think Australia as a country and how investments work over here, you have to have some traction. Traction means you have to have a product and you have to be, you have to have paying customers. I don't think that you can have a concept over here and just because you have such an amazing concept um, that someone will invest. If you are, if you're a proven like serial entrepreneur, you're already launched two businesses and they're IPO'd and they're massively successful, chances are for your next idea, you will get investment. But if you actually haven't done that yet, and so basically you're, you have been employed and they have this amazing idea and you think there's really a niche and you have all the ingredients together, um, and we had we have patents, right? Like we have patents, and it, it still it took us like a long time. They want traction. They want to actually see is it's selling. People buy and they recommend you. Um, that, that that's definitely. Uh, if you don't have that, I wouldn't even talk to investors, to be honest. Unless unless you know investors and you basically through your past connections and you just give them your tell them that your idea. You won't get investment at that point, but at least if they know about your idea, they say, hey, let's talk again next year, right? Mm-hmm. And then see if you have any traction. So. I think for Australia, don't think this is not how this is not Silicon Valley, um, and I think things might change there as well. Yeah, well, everything's changing. There's a whole lot of flux going on in the everyday life that we lead, yeah. and uh, especially for small businesses. That's some really, really good advice in terms of being patient. And I think uh, at the end of all of this, we're all going to learn a hell of a lot of patience. Um, yeah. Andreas, could I encourage you just tell us where people can find out a little bit about um, your business and um, where they can find out about your product? Sure. Um, so our website is longtailux.com. 
so long tail UX, all in one word. It actually stands for long tail user experience. Um, so it's all about providing a better user experience when people search on Google and they find things faster. There's more relevant pages on a website, so you can rank better, but also when you click on ads that you actually find all the products you were looking for, not just one or maybe something similar, right? Um, so yeah, go to the website, longtailux.com. Um, we also have a tool, if you are in e-commerce, it's called the Scorecard. So that's scorecard.longtailux.com, where you can actually connect your, um, your Google Analytics numbers and you can basically get a forecast like would lo this long-tail technology be actually um, uh, val valuable for you and, and what does it mean? Um, so you actually get numbers. And yeah, that's pretty much, pretty much. And on our website, there's some videos, there's an explainer video. So there's lots of resources you can find there. Fantastic. There's actually also one resource, one resource which, which I also want to share. We created a page. It's like, this is how we do work from home with like tools and tips and tips and like what we're doing. So it's actually a blog article. So when you go onto our website, go onto the blog, there's one page which is, which is called like, I think it's work, work from home um, best practices. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing that and all of your knowledge today about the way that you've operated uh, in, in this success and through um, having such a diverse workforce. Thank you very much for joining me, Alexi Boyd, on Small Biz Matters. Thank you, Alexi.